0: Welcome once again to Signals to Danger, the podcast which explores the history of our nation's railways and its darkest days. My name is Dan Fox. I'm the producer of Signals to Danger, but I'm also a full time employee with a UK train operating company. I just want to thank once again those of you who've come out to support the podcast either on Patreon or by purchasing merchandise. And this week, I want to welcome you to part two of our multi part episode covering the 1999 Labrook Grove collision where we'll be discussing the investigation. If you haven't yet listened to episode one, then now is the time to pause. Uh, Go back, listen to episode one, and come back to this one when you've heard our account of the accident itself. With the intro dealt with, let's move into this week's episode, and I warn you as I write it, I'm increasingly sure it's going to be a long one. 36 die in a South London train crash. Some who survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This was, in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. We'll begin this episode with a very brief recap of the events which unfolded a little after 8am on the morning of the 5th of October 1999, and it's a brief recap that I've lifted straight from one of the documents that I've been reviewing prior to writing this episode. On the 5th of October 1999 at 8 or 9am, a Thames train's three-car turbo class 165 diesel unit travelling from Paddington to Bedwin in Wiltshire collided with the first great western high-speed train travelling from Cheltenham Spa to Paddington. The collision took place at Ladbroke Grove Junction, two miles outside Paddington Station. As a result of the collision and the subsequent fires, 31 people died, 24 from the 165 and 7 from the HST, including the drivers of both trains. A further 227 were taken to hospital. 296 people were treated for minor injuries on site. And it is a very brief summary indeed, especially considering I managed to make that last nearly an hour, last week's episode. So again, if you do want that story and how that took place in far more detail, then go back and listen to episode one. As the smoke began to fade over the accident site at Labrook Grove, a grim and difficult task lay at the feet of those who held the responsibility for understanding how the accident took place. And in 1999, there was no such body as the RAIB, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. So the next question we're going to ask is this. Who were the bodies that held that responsibility? And we'll start by introducing this episode's first acronym. It's HSE, or more explicitly, the Health and Safety Executive. The Health and Safety Executive is the UK government organisation responsible for the encouragement, regulation, and enforcement of workplace health, safety, and welfare, and for research into the occupational risks in Great Britain. And prior to 2008, The HSE reported into the HSC, the Health and Safety Commission, but in 2008 those two bodies were merged. Crucial to know at this point as well is that between 1990 and 2006, the HSE also encompassed His Majesty's Rail Inspectorate, although at the time it was certainly Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate. Under both monarchs, however, the acronym of importance here is HMRI. HMRI was established in 1840 initially and has served under various guises, first as a separate departmental body reporting into the Board of Trade but later as I said as part of HSE. In its later life it would move again to another parent organisation but we might cover that a bit further down the line. Until the late 1960s, HMRI's inspecting officers were all recruited from the Corps of Royal Engineers, which is why in many of our previous episodes, you'll probably have noted the use of military ranks while I refer to the investigators. And with all of this in mind, let's look, at, look take a look at what took place following the accident, fully armed with our new book of acronyms. Immediately following the collision at Ladbroke Grove, the HSC, immediately requested the HSE, to conduct an investigation and produce a report under Section 142A of the Health and Safety at Work Act, etc., to 1974. Section 14 of the Act, which essentially is one of the most crucial pieces of health and safety legislation in the UK, makes a provision for the HSE to be able to direct investigations and inquiries, with 2A stating that the Executive may at any time investigate and make a special report on any matter to which their remit applies. And this was the usual process where a large accident took place, not just within the rail industry, although clearly HMRI was going to play a big part in this process. Something slightly different also took place here, however. At the same time as the HSE investigation was announced, HSC also subsequently announced that Lord Cullen would conduct a public inquiry under Section 14.2b of the Health and Safety at Work Act, which states that the Act allowed the executive to authorise another person to investigate and to make a special report into any such matter. The inquiry which was requested stated the following terms of reference. The first was to inquire into and draw lessons from the accident near Paddington station on the 5th of October 1999, taking into account the findings of the HSE's investigation into immediate causes. Secondly, it was to consider general experience derived from relevant accidents on the railways since the Hidden Inquiry, with a view to drawing conclusions about factors which affect safety management and the appropriateness of the current regulatory regime. And finally, in light of that second aim, it was to make recommendations for improving safety on the future railway. The hidden inquiry, well, that had been the result of another critical accident on the railway, another really important one, which we haven't covered yet, and that was Clapham Junction. Given the terms of reference for Lord Fulk Cullen's inquiry, it was decided that the HSE report would be factual. It wouldn't make recommendations. It would concentrate primarily on the technical issues surrounding the causes of the collision instead of the root causes. And because of this, I've used both documents to pull this episode together. But predominantly, it's the more comprehensive Cullen inquiry report. And what I would say about that at this point, just right at the beginning, is that the part one of the Cullen Inquiry, which covers the accident itself and the the reasons behind it, 280 odd pages long. It is one of the longest reports I've ever used for an episode of this podcast. So I really will not be able to cover everything that's in there just to manage expectations. But in any case, with instructions issued by HRC and the scope of the various reports decided, the work began. HMRI inspectors were on site only about an hour after the accident took place, and early discussions were held with the British Transport Police to implement the Work-Related Deaths Protocol, which HSE has with the, well, it's a mouthful, but it's the Police Forces and Crown Prosecution Service. This protocol acknowledges that in the case of a work-related death on the railway, HSE and BTP both have different but closely related roles and responsibilities. BTP has a responsibility to investigate crime in general, but in these cases, it's particularly the possibility of manslaughter or corporate manslaughter charges, and they also have a role in assisting the coroner. HSE, on the other hand, can't investigate or prosecute for general offences such as manslaughter, just health and safety offences. And you'd think they'd be dif- the same thing, but they're not, they're different. Labrook Grove, therefore, became a joint investigation, HSE conducting the investigation into the technical issues, including why the accident happened and what action needed to be taken, while BTP conducted the part which explored potential criminal issues. HSE maintained a site investigation team for nine days, and in addition to the railway inspectors, they called on the services of a wide range of staff, including other health and safety investigators and inspectors, construction specialists, administrative staff, and photographic fire and mechanical engineering experts from the health and safety laboratory. All of this was in the aim of answering a number of questions, and gaining an understanding of exactly why Ladbrook Grove took place. As we get into the part of the podcast where we start talking about causes and investigating those causes and trying to understand exactly what took place, I'm going to read out one sentence, well, one section really from the Cullen Report, just to sum up a difficulty with all of this process. So we are confronted in the report with the sentence, why did driver Hodder pass SN109 at red and why did he not attempt to stop thereafter until the crash was imminent. This sentence is very closely followed by this one. The fact that driver Hodder died in the crash makes the the task of attempting to answer these questions far from straightforward. I must avoid mere speculation. I must ask myself what inferences, if any, can and should be drawn from the circumstances. And this is very much true it can be specifically challenging to understand the reasons that events took place when the key players involved in them are tragically no longer available to answer the question. The inquiry does, however, helpfully remove from the equation a few potential factors and potential causes at the outset because of evidence that was obtained by the investigation. And I'll probably rattle through these a little bit because we know they weren't relevant and because the report is 280 odd pages long. Cullen, in the inquiry, was satisfied that there was no malfunction of the turbo, the track, the signalling, or the automated warning system, which could have contributed to what happened. The same could be said of the braking systems on the trains as well. While components from both trains were damaged considerably, and this was even more true of the turbo, with virtually a third of the train gone, specialists did test what was available. The Automated Warning System, or AWS, was a system we've previously discussed, which would have given Hodder an audible and visual warning of the yellow and red signal aspects on the journey to SN109. The remaining AWS equipment from Hodder's unit give no signs that it had ceased to work and the track-mounted components of the system also passed with flying colours. This eliminated the possibility that they hadn't functioned on the day and contributed to the incident. Analysis of the data recorders from the trim, although the front one was considerably damaged and required specialist attention to pull anything off, also told the tale of correct AWS alerts being issued to Hodder and, crucially, him acknowledging each of them. The braking systems of the trains were also assessed, with most of the HST being easy to undertake and the leading two vehicles also performing acceptably, with the exception of those components that were damaged in the crash. The turbo was also assessed, although this was really limited to the rear two vehicles, as the components from that virtually destroyed leading carriage would have yielded, well, safe to say little in the way of usable data. Although some of the braking and wheel slide protection equipment was damaged during the collision, tests were able to be carried out and they were consistent with the correct functioning of the systems. While their components were present in the lead vehicle, they were very much untestable. There wasn't any evidence, though, that those systems weren't working in that leading vehicle, even though they couldn't go through and fully test them, and it was confirmed by an evaluation of the data recorder information. Detailed technical examination and tests of the complex critical equipment associated with the signalling system were also carried out by consultancy, W.S. Atkins, as part of the investigation as well. The signalling in the area around Paddington was fitted with something called SSI, or solid state interlocking. And it's a more modern system which replaced the mechanical rods and bolts which had historically prevented mechanical signaling from creating conflicting routes. Atkins undertook checks on the SSI data design, um, an assessment of the performance of the data links, testing of the relevant signal modules, and an assessment of the power supply arrangements, just to eliminate if any of those could have created a dangerous situation that could have contributed to conflicting routes and it wasn't driver error that had brought the two trains together. However, no abnormalities, no anomalies were discovered which could explain the accident. This was accompanied by an inspection of the trackside components, so even four of the signals that Hodder had driven past on the way to the up main were removed and transported to a lab for further assessment, but this only seemed to eliminate another potential cause. No evidence was found to indicate that any of the signalling equipment performed otherwise than as expected, and in particular, Atkins considered that there could be no doubt that the aspects displayed by signals SN63, SN87, SN109, and SN120 were in accordance with the commands generated by the trackside SSI modules. All good work, all technically verified, but all we've done at this point is eliminate potential causes, which might have provided a reason and indeed, vindication for the actions of driver Hodder. As it stood, however, the next step was to understand, in so far as possible, exactly what was happening in that cab between 8.06 and 8.09 on the 5th. Amongst the mystery of what had happened in the cab of Hodder's train, investigators were at least confident in one factor, that Hodder had not intentionally driven his train past the red signal. There was no evidence which suggested this grim possibility, which I believe is something positive that we can take from that. It does leave, however, one of two possibilities which the inquiry then considered. The first was that at some stage, driver Hodder had formed the mistaken belief that he had or would have a proceed aspect at Gantry 8 where SN 109 was located. The second was that he didn't believe there were any signals on SN on Gantry 8, which applied to him. If the latter was the case, he must have been acting on the basis of a proceed aspect which he'd received at an earlier stage. The first point which was considered within this section of the inquiry was actually a review of the design of the track work, or the permanent way, on the approaches to to Paddington and the exit from Paddington. And we should probably look now to understand this and some of the issues which it threw into the mix. A scheme for the modernisation of the infrastructure between Paddington Station and Ladbroke Grove was approved by the British Railways Board in 1989. The prime drivers for the change were the needs of the Intercity Mainline Services and the Network South East Suburban Services to have increased service frequencies. It appears that the design of the Permanent Way was governed by a desire to use high-speed running lines as close to Paddington as possible. And as a result, high-speed connections and crossovers were worked into the design. And the intention was that speeds of 100 mile an hour could be achieved at 2 miles from Paddington. And that trains could cross from one line to another at speeds of up to 90 miles an hour. This is a um, very mainline countryside running, Um, in my mind, this is quite close for those line speeds to remain a feature. Two miles out from the platforms is kind of, it's okay in my mind to still be building up to or slowing down from the mainline speeds. But the result of this was the layout that we mentioned last week. Six lines out of Paddington, each intended for running in each direction, so bi-directional. They converged at Ladbroke Grove into the up and down main and the up and down relief lines and the uh, the layout between Paddington and Ladbroke Grove provided for access from and egress to either main or relief line from any of the platforms at the station once the track desired track work had been designed that's when the signaling followed and because of the considerable number of connections between the running lines and the fact that they were intended to be used at high speed that meant that the signaling layout that was proposed and designed and implemented was one of the most complicated in the entire country. And because of the limited width between the six bi bi-directional lines, a really good number of those signals had to be placed on gantries over the tracks, such as Gantry 8 with SN109 hanging from it. That gantry carried both up and down signals, so there were signals on either side of the gantry for all of the tracks. The spacing between the signals that was put in complied with a curve that used to correlate speed against distance. So it would tell you at what line speed you had, what distance apart the signals needed to be. But it was the multi-use model, and this included the use of freight trains. It's not sure why this was used on what's actually a passenger line on the approach to a terminus station, but it meant that the signals were spaced further apart than the passenger curve would have put them. Very simple reason being that freight trains tend to take longer to slow down, so signals need to be further apart for a desired line speed. It means that Gantry 8 was actually placed to the west of a fairly heavy-duty bridge which took Goulburn Road over the railway, and that wouldn't have been the case if the passenger curve had been used. This location on the west of the bridge added a side effect of reducing its sighting distance, and that coincided with an approach speed of 95 miles an hour. Following the system going live, the issue with the sighting was noticed and the setup changed and ultimately the signal was changed itself and lowered down with the red aspect, previously the bottom of four lamps in a vertical column, being moved to the left of the lowest yellow. And that left the four signal lamps arranged in a reverse L shape, three down, one to the side. The approach speed to the signal was revised to 60 miles an hour. The area was later electrified with the power switched on in 1996. And while there was a side effect of this change, which was that the overhead line equipment or OHLE was to further reduce the visibility of the signals, especially those on gantries three and eight. All of this should paint a picture of signal visibility in the area and some of the challenges which were experienced by drivers leaving and arriving into Paddington. All of this complex track work and signalling led to, well, what was quite a complex situation for drivers to negotiate as they arrived and left from the Paddington area, and the use of ARS, or automated route setting, as we discussed last week, didn't help the situation. Drivers found that the use of ARS in conjunction with the new track system meant that there was an enormous variety of routes which they could be required to follow. As all six lines were bidirectional, Drivers could be given routes out the station which would see them repeatedly swing left and right from one line to the other before they finally got out onto either the down main or down relief lines. A former British Railway's operations manager said of this situation, In over 45 years in the industry, I have never seen such a confusing set of options to a driver. As part of the investigation and the inquiry, many drivers gave evidence that the sighting of numerous signals when going in and out of Paddington on the bi-directional line was difficult and confusing, not helped by them being, well, intermittently obscured by bridges and OHLE. Mr. Graham Robinson, a train driver with Thames Trains, said that with the gantry signals at Paddington, there are just so many you have to keep working out which is yours all the time. And Mr. Philip Wells, a driver instructor for Thames Trains, said... With the electrification, you cannot see most of the signals at all until you are on top of them now. And he went on to say, I take it signal to signal. You have to take it really slowly and you need to know which line you're actually on. And you need to count from left to right and right to left. You need to double check again and again. And you have to be certain. Just to add into this, um, it's an addendum to my script. Driving a train is a really complicated job. It really isn't sit there, push a lever. There is so much to to check on. There's so many driving tasks that need to take place. There's so much awareness. And actually having to really concentrate and do a signal to signal and checking and counting. And that's a lot of extra tasks to add into that, which are all generated by the complexity of the signaling layout here. And part of this complexity Well, that was probably demonstrated in the eight previous spads which started our story last week, but we might discuss them a little more later on. One factor that we haven't mentioned yet is that Hodder was actually a brand new driver, recently qualified in the role, and in fact only passing out as a driver on the 22nd of September, 13 days before the accident. So to start with, this gave Hodder incredibly less experience traversing the route in and out of Paddington than some of the drivers with decades of experience who previously managed to spad SN109. In fact, between passing out and the accident, he'd only driven trains out of Paddington on 20 occasions, and only once passed SN109. The majority of Michael's experience driving trains to date was actually as a result of his training, as opposed to experience he'd picked up through years of continuous development and learning on the job, so it's only natural that the investigation reviewed exactly what that training experience was. And this is one of the key factors to understanding what happened, is understanding how he was trained. He began that training on the 1st of February 1999, with the general introductory training for the railways followed by two weeks of observing a driver standards manager at work. He then spent five weeks of training on the rules and regulations. Following his rules and regulations training, he was assessed as satisfactory and had two weeks introduction to train driving with a driver instructor. On the 22nd of April, he began four weeks of traction training, followed by another assessment, and on the 31st of May, he began 16 weeks of practical handling training before being assessed once more which sounds like a really long training process, which actually, I think it's a little shorter than I'd expect to see nowadays. I think it's probably fair to say you wouldn't see someone off the street uh, qualifying the same year that they started training. I believe the number I last heard was about 13 to 18 months for a trainee driver to become fully productive on what they need to know and driving trains on their own with no restrictions or minding. It's important to add at this point that during all of his training activities and assessments, Hodder's trainers warmly praised his cheerful attitude and the rate at which he applied himself to and learnt the task. There's no question that Hodder was a good pupil, he attended all the training courses as described, while it was his train that passed the signal. I really have no intention, within any of these episodes, of painting Hodder as the villain of the piece. For reasons we'll get into later on, I just don't think it's the case can't necessarily say the same for Hodder's training, however. In fact, the report refers to it as deficient in several aspects. In fact, the director and general manager of Thames Trains later accepted that the company's management of his training had failed to instruct him directly about the risks of SPADs at particular signals, such as SM109. They hadn't arranged for him to attend a SPAD Awareness Day or to ensure that his route learning assessment questions specifically covered the area between Paddington and Ladbroke Grove an area that we've already ascertained was disproportionately complex. No record exists of any specific training that was given to Hodder regarding the signals between Paddington and Labbrook Grove, other than a comment from one instructor to say that Paddington was particularly tricky and that he should pay particular attention in that area and drive from one signal to the next. We can add into this that Hodder wasn't taught to pay particular attention to signals at which there had been multiple spads, And in fact, this information hadn't been given to any of the instructors, or sorry, by any of the instructors to any of the driver trainees. Not only does that feel a little bit irresponsible, it was actually out of alignment with the railway standard at the time. GO slash RT 3252, because I know you love a a standards reference number, required details of multi-spadded signals to be supplied to training instructors and passed on to drivers, something which clearly hadn't taken place. There were also some questions raised regarding the efficacy of Thames Train's training programme, the validation of their assessment criteria, and how route learning was handled. The inquiry concluded, therefore, that Driver Hodder's training was not adequate for the task which he was being prepared for, and the very favourable comments made as to his progress by his various teachers have to be viewed against the background that his teachers while they were working with a less-than-perfect training programme. To try and understand the reasons which Hodder failed to stop at SN109, the inquiry next looked at his approach to the preceding signal, SN87, which had displayed a single yellow aspect. The report tells us that on any view, his driving prior to SN87 was, well, unexceptional. Mr. Gollop, the gentleman who had examined the OTMR record, that's the on-train monitoring recorder, another word for an OTDR, data recorder, Well, he explained that his interpretation was that after setting out from Paddington, Hodder had shut off power and performed a running brake test. After that, he'd allowed the train to coast for some considerable distance. Mr. Gollop regarded that as quite significant. It indicated to him that at the time, that Hodder had realised he wasn't running on green signals. Earlier in the day, on a previous departure from Paddington, Hodder had retaken power after the brake test, which you would expect from someone with clean signals, knowing that he'd just get it up to speed. The single yellow at SN87 would have been visible for the preceding 460 metres and this signal wasn't at all obstructed. Council for Rail Track submitted to the inquiry that having passed SN87 and having coasted at a slightly reduced speed for about 10 seconds, Hodder should have begun braking, as a careful driver would have done, in order to stop at an appropriate distance before reaching SN109. Council relied on evidence about defensive driving, which was intended to be practised by thames Turns drivers. According to that driving technique, a driver who received a single yellow aspect should drive in a way so as to stop about 20 yards before the next signal. However, Hodder didn't brake, but engaged notch one of the accelerator when he was 255 metres away from SM109, and then one second later, and about 15 metres closer at notch 5. While he was at those points, the red aspect that would have been shown on SN109 wasn't yet visible. It was Railtrack's opinion that through inattention, driver Hodder hadn't seen the yellow aspect at SN87. He acted as though he hadn't seen it, in the same way that driver Hussein had described two years earlier when he had a spat. However, this wasn't the only possible interpretation. The other, submitted by other esper- experts, was that the spacing between the signals of over 600 metres meant that Hodder didn't need to take immediate action to bring the train to a stand, and he wouldn't need to for at least another 20 seconds, so he continued coasting. As such, the expert, who was a Mr Wilkins, put it to the inquiry that there remains the possibility that in this interval, Hodder forgot or misremembered the message that was given by SN87. And to be fair, Errors of that type have been determined as common causes of SPADs and the risk is controlled through group standards by limits placed on the spacing between caution and stop signals. The provision of the excessive distance for braking passenger trains was largely concentrated in the section between SN87 and SN109 and it does constitute a potential risk factor. Another explanation, which was advanced by First Great Western's counsel at the inquiry, was that Hodder believed that SN87 was displaying not a single yellow, but a double yellow, and this was actually said to be supported by another Thames train driver who'd driven an empty stock train out from Platform 8 about 10 minutes earlier. As he was approaching Gantry 6 with SN87 and other signals, he received an AWS bell that told him that his signal was at green. However, when he looked at the signals across the track, they were all just lit up like a Christmas tree. He remarked how bright and low the sun was behind him. He couldn't have really told which was the correct aspect. And in this way, it was maintained that Hodder could have been led to believe that there was a double yellow aspect at SN87 and therefore would expect to proceed at SN109. The low light in the rear of these signals actually did come up quite a bit in the inquiry and there was some possibility of the lenses being washed out by direct sunlight raised as a potential influencing factor for the accident. Next, we need to discuss SN109 itself, the visibility of it specifically. The HSE investigation told us that the view when approaching signals on Gantry 8 is complex because the signals are frequently obscured by the girders under the bridge, the overhead line equipment, and at the time of the collision, all aspects of all the signals on Gantry 8 were at red, but the red aspect of SM-109 is only fully visible some 60 metres after all the other aspects are visible. And the alignment? Well, that's such that at the time of the collision, the sun was shining towards it. To determine the effect of sunlight on the visibility of the signal, a test train signal sighting run was carried out. It was done on the 6th of October, the day after the collision, during similar weather conditions, and when the sun was in a similar position as to what it had been on the morning. During this signal sighting exercise, it was noted that the bright sunlight reduced the perceived brightness of the signal by reducing the contrast between that aspect and the immediate surroundings. And that is a phenomenon that's known as swamping. So basically, the signal light doesn't look as bright and visible because everything else around it is lit up like a spotlight is shining at it. But they did say that the lit aspect was readily visible 107 metres away, and at close range, it became identifiable when compared to the unlit aspects. But the degree of swamping wasn't sufficient to prevent it from remaining the dominant aspect. Compliance with standards is a really important factor, but the the committee of experts on signal sighting agreed that SN one o nine wasn't compliant. The whole signal couldn't be seen for at least seven seconds, sighting time at line speed from the cab of. Uh, class 165. Actually to be honest what they did tell us was to comply with the standard the entry 8 would need to have been on the east side of the road bridge. Similarly it wasn't compliant with another code of practice which was in force when the signaling system was being designed and that standard was eventually replaced with the group standards but we might touch on that one a little bit later again. Despite all of this quite technical information that I've tried to get out quite quickly and not just swamp it in technicalities, but there is a lot of technicalities in a nearly 300-page report. They go into the detail, and pulling it out and making it translatable has been a little bit more challenging this time, just to try and get the key fact across, but also to, to demonstrate the sheer volume of data anyway. Despite all of this, it is sufficient to say that in the case of Hodder, the time that he had to sight SM-109 isn't actually an explanation for his failing to stop at the signal. If he had applied the brakes on seeing the red aspect at 168 metres away, he could have brought the turbo to a halt at the signal. And it's also clear that he didn't at any stage react to seeing that red aspect by applying the brakes. It isn't possible he read across to another signal because all the signals on that gantry were read at the time. So that possibility is eliminated, which ties us back into those two potential explanations. And I am going to try and wrap this segment up because it's run on for a little while now. But I'm sure you're all waiting for an answer. But this is just what happens when the accidents are so significant. I just keep typing and reading and typing and reading. While we can't know for certain what took place... As I said before, those two potential reasons left were that Hodder believed he had no signals at the gantry which applied to him, or that he believed firmly that he had a proceed aspect and permission to continue. And we know that option A is eliminated quite easily because that gantry was a landmark. It was a place where all six of the bidirectional lines converged prior to entering the up and down lines. A theory that some of the non-parallel positioning of the other signals might have led him to think there was no signal at Gantry 8, but that doesn't really have much strength in it, because this is the place where all of the lines came together and they all had a signal. Option B from those two possibilities does present some firmer opportunity. There is no suggestion that Hodder deliberately ignored what was being showed by SM109 or the preceding signal. While RailTrack submitted the inquiry that he'd missed the signal, believed he had a clear run, Cullen was not persuaded of this fact. He was not persuaded that the evidence indicated any inattention by the part of Driver Hodder to the signal before SN87. The fact that he didn't begin to brake didn't show Cullen that he hadn't seen SN87 or that it hadn't registered with him. RailTrack used some calculations of braking distances that we've discussed earlier, but we need to bear in mind that Hodder was an inexperienced driver and may not yet have the experience and knowledge to know exactly the the the, the meters per second slowing of a class 165 or the exact point and the exact brake notch to put in in the same way as a mathematician working it out in an office with calculators and time might be able to provide Add to this the low likelihood that he hadn't seen the preceding signal due to the good sighting and the signal layout, and in view of wrapping up this somewhat lengthy section, Cullen therefore, with the full view of all the evidence, came to several conclusions explaining the manner of driving. And these were as follows. Firstly, that Michael Hodder believed he had a proceed aspect at SM109. Secondly, that it's more probable than not that with the poor sighting of SM109, both in itself and in comparison to other signals on and at Gantry 8, allied to the effect of the bright sunlight at a low angle were all factors which led him to believe that he had a proceed aspect and saw that it was appropriate for him to accelerate as he did. Also, that after the red aspect of SM-109 ceased to be obstructed, he could have seen it during a period of 8 seconds as he approached that signal, but it appears that he did not see it or did not realise that there was a red aspect. The fourth was that while it might be expected that if he was concentrating on his duties he would look again at the signal, this would depend on the various tasks and the confidence he had that he had already identified what he thought that signal was showing. The fifth conclusion was that the unusual configuration of the signal, SN109's reverse L that we mentioned before, not only impaired initial sighting of the red aspect, that might also mislead an inexperienced driver such as Hodder who was looking at the signal at close range, into thinking that it was not showing a red, but a proceed aspect. And finally, one of the most important factors in my mind, the fact that he had not been instructed that SN109 was a multi-spad signal, increased the risk of his making and not correcting a mistake as to the aspect shown by the signal. That was a risky signal. That was a problem signal that people with nearly 40 years of train driving experience had managed to spad over the course of the last few years. And the brand new guy hadn't been told. The final point that I'll raise on the handling of the train by Hodder at this point is that the previous year there had been another spad, as we know, the one on the 4th of February. In fact, there were so many similarities between the two Over the course of the inquiry, that one became known as the dress rehearsal for the 5th of October the next year. The only key difference between the two was that the previous driver had noticed as he arrived at SM109 that the signal was red. If he hadn't, perhaps we would have had seen something which much more closely resembled the result of Michael Hodder's entry error. But the key point to remember, and where we're going to go next, is that whatever the reason behind Hodder's error there were significant failings both on the day and long beforehand which contributed as much, if not more, to the events at Ladbrook Grove. And we're going to look at those next. When we look at the signalling at Paddington at the time of the accident, it's important to make a distinction between that traditional signalling of old and the modern world of automated route setting. Whereas on a manually signalled area, each train would have the individual route set for it one by one by the signaller, and each signal set in turn and cleared. Under ARS, the system is doing all of this itself, and the role of the signaller is changed somewhat. He monitors and watches the trains go through, and intervenes when required. While the ARS was in operation, which was normally the case at Paddington, it was the function of the signalers at the IECC, which is known, which is actually the Integrated Electronic Control Centre at Slough, to monitor the operation of the system and intervene, like I said, when necessary. And one situation where a signaler would certainly need to intervene. that's when a train passes one of those signals at danger. And in those circumstances, the intervention of a signalman, depending on the circumstances, could provide a line of defense to prevent a SPAD leading to a crash or to another dangerous incident. Within the IECC, there were several workstations, with workstation 1 covering the area between Paddington and Acton, where the accident took place. The desks each consisted of a number of display screens showing a schematic version of the layout and showing the progress of trains as well as a keyboard and trackball, phone handsets and radio equipment for contacting trains on the network. The signaller at the workstation, he was able to monitor the operation of ARS by looking at what was shown on the schematic layouts. He could replace a signal to danger by one of two methods. Firstly, by using that trackball to move the cursor on the layout to the appropriate signal and pressing a red cancel button, or by typing out the number of the signal on the keyboard and pressing the cancel button. Of the two methods, signalers believe that the first was the fastest. It was also possible for the signal return to return to red all the signals that he related to his workstation by pressing one of six emergency all signals on buttons And this had the effect of removing the power supply and making it no longer possible to change points. The provision of those buttons was actually intended to deal with a situation where the visual display system had frozen. And uh, in order to prevent damage to the SSI, those buttons were required to be kept depressed for 15 seconds. The practical disadvantage of using those as a means to replacing signals to danger in an emergency like a SPAD was that that might actually put other trains and their passengers at risk so with the knowledge of these provisions let's have a look at what actually took place on the day the signalling and the SSI logs from the IECC did provide a nice blow by blow with times for when things took place and we'll start at 808 and 29 seconds the occupation of a track circuit beyond SN109 without that signal being clear sounded an alarm. The schematic display showed a red line indicating the occupation of that circuit and that a spad had taken place at the signal. This was followed by another alarm, five seconds later, which told the signalers that the rear of that train had cleared the preceding track circuit. Another two seconds later, a third alarm sounded when Hodder's train entered the next track circuit. So how did the signalers in the IECC react? The records show that the next system movement was the fact that between 47 and 49 seconds after 8.08, that the signal in front of the HST SN120 was put back to red. After this, the system, well, recorded track circuit after track circuit, becoming occupied until the two trains, well, we know what happened next. This does mean that from the time when the first alarm sounded, a total of between 18 and 20 seconds elapsed until the signal actually acted to replace SN120 to red and this seems like quite a long time to to do anything. Hodder had passed the last signal before the collision point there was no way that anything could be set in front of him to warn him but we know that Cooper was still at least approaching a signal that could be changed to warn him despite the limited impact it might have had considering the stopping distances of trains. The signaller on duty at this workstation at the time was Dave Allen, a grade 10 signaller with about 16 years' experience. Allen gave evidence at the inquiry, which told him that while he was looking at station worksheets, he heard an alarm. He then looked at the alarm screen, and then the schematic screen, which indicated that one kilo 20 Hodder's train, had passed SN109 at danger. At this point, we start to understand one of the reasons for the pause. Alan recounted the day to the inquiry, saying, There was a short period of time when I was expecting the driver to come on the phone and say that he had passed the signal at danger. It was only then, when he progressed over the junction, I knew that we not only had a SPAD, that we had a train running away, so to speak, and dealt with that accordingly. His limit of SPADs, as his experience of SPADs, as limited as it was, was that in, and I quote from what he said, "...99% of the time when I have dealt with SPADs, the driver had always come on the phone within a very short time." Following this pause, we know that Alan set back 120 in what was unfortunately a bit of a futile attempt to present disaster. There was another thing that Alan could have done to try and prevent the accident, and that was to make an emergency call to Hodder. The trains operated by Thames Trains carried a cab secure radio unit, known as a CSR. This enabled direct communication between the IECC and the driver where the signaller could make a telephone call, waiting for him to respond by picking up the telephone in the cab. Additionally, he could have put out a general call by voice contact to the cabs of all the trains that were fitted with CSR, and this would be heard immediately by all of them. On top of this, he could also send an emergency text message to a particular train. This would sound an alarm in the cab and cause a message to flash up on screen on the driver's dashboard. The signalman could send such a message by making four strokes on his keyboard for the headcode, followed by pressing a stop button. So did Alan do this? He did not. However, one of his colleagues Hillman had run over from the other workstation to help, and he did so, though to no avail. Under questioning, it was explained that Alan had shouted that one kilo two zero had passed a signal at danger, and that Hillman could see the headcode on the screen. Alan changed from the overview screen to the detailed screen for Labbrook Grove, with a view to attempting to move another set of points to the reverse position, and divert kilo two zero toward the down relief. However, as the train entered the next track circuit, Alan said that he couldn't do that anyway because he was then track locked. The system's interlocking wouldn't let him move the points because the train was in that section. Alan had never used the CSR to send an emergency stop message before. but We do need to now briefly talk about a very concerning word when we look into accidents. Discrepancies. There were definitive issues in the evidence supplied by Allen to various bodies as the accident at Ladbroke Grove was investigated. His evidence provided at the inquiry, well, it didn't align with previous evidence he'd provided to various bodies as part of the investigations. The first question was around timings. In giving evidence to the inquiry, he used the term that he had immediately set SN120 to danger in front of the HST. And in a note he wrote on the day shortly after the accident, he used the phrase, I quickly replaced SN120 to danger. In fact, in a police statement and the written submission to the inquiry, he also used the word immediately to describe that. The timings were altered in a further police statement to say that he only did so after the next track circuit was occupied. And in fact, we can see that over the period of time, up until the point where Alan actually gave evidence to the inquiry in person, Well, he progressively moved away from the position which had described how he immediately took action after the crash. The second difficulty is that at the outset after the crash, Alan made no reference to attempting to reverse the points. And in fact, the signalling records from the interlocking system show that no record of this attempted change was ever made. You do wonder if this is perhaps a should would have could a moment accidentally making its way into, this is what I tried to do. Then on top of that, in two separate records, Alan said it was him and not Hillman that had sent the emergency stop message to Hodder. And things just don't entirely add up. And Hillman's various accounts also threw up some inconsistencies, particularly around who sent and when they sent a stop message to Michael Hodder's train. There is a question as to whether or not a stop message was actually sent to Hodder by either of the signalers, And unfortunately, it is impossible to have uh, independent evidence verify whether that took place. CSR, or its use, was recorded on a radio data logger disc at the IECC, as as, as well as the other digital evidence of what had taken place on the day. But the existence of that disc wasn't known to rail track staff at the IECC at the time of the crash, or when the various other records were removed for the purpose of investigations. So those records were never obtained. The assessment of Allen's action, as detailed in the report, was this. It is clear that Mr. Allen was aware from the outset that one kilo 20 had passed a signal at danger, and that Alpha09 was approaching from the west. As he made clear those were the only two train movements in the area at the time. He took no action before one k 20 reached a specific track circuit, not because he was needing time to ascertain what was displayed as a workstation or to decide what course of action that he should adopt, but because he was expecting that the train would stop within the next 200 yards or so. The approach taken by Allen and others to spads seem to reveal a serious underrating of the risks that this might involve, assuming that spads would just happen and then the driver would ring up for a telling off, ask about filling out the paperwork. It feels like it led to an assumption that they weren't really dangerous occurrences, they were a someone's messed up type of moment can't be safely assumed that the train is going to halt within 200 yards of the signal, let alone beyond that. And in fact, the time that was allowed to pass before Hodder's train reached track circuit GF, which was the point when Alan thought, hmm, should do something about this, that was time lost in regard to any action that was directed to bringing that train to a halt or diverting it onto another line. There were instructions in place that meant that the first obligations on a signalman was to immediately take such steps as were available them to stop the spadding train and take any other emergency action necessary to deal with the situation. And if a spadding train is fitted with CSR, the most obvious and effective means of stopping it is to send that emergency message by radio. But what happened in this case, it's clear, was that for a brief period of time, Mr. Allen consciously waited to see what would happen. In light of this fact, and the evidence from witnesses who were experienced in the work of signalling was just all to the same effect, that it was not acceptable or justifiable for a signal simply to wait and see what happened before he took any of the other courses available to him, be that uh, replacing a signal on a converging line to red, arranging to stop the spadding train or diverting it. There were two other points remaining to be raised by Cullen in his inquiry. While traditionally signalers have relied on signals as being the means of communicating with drivers, there seems to have been a failure to realise the importance of that direct radio communication where it's possible, and it was possible at Ladbroke Grove. It was plain to the inquiry that Mr Allen was not adequately prepared by training or instruction for this approach. And yet, in the circumstances, it was probably the only realistic way that he could have stopped the turbo. Secondly, the evidence strongly indicated that despite all the written instructions, SPADs were regarded by signalers as a matter of driver error. It was Cullen's opinion that this not only showed a dangerous complacency, but a lack of collaboration in the management of safety. Which leaves us with the question of what more could have been done. Starting um, with the speed at which SN120 had been set back prior to the accident. Had Allen set SN120 back to danger earlier, it wouldn't have prevented the accident potentially, it may may have done, but that would be a very, very big ask with the speed that the HS2 was approaching at. Realistically, all that would probably have happened would be a marginal decrease in the speed of the HS2 at the time of the collision from 82.5 miles an hour to about 72 miles an hour. But it's keen to recognise here that any reduction in speed would have had a relatively significant effect on the force involved. Um, the, the technical specialists in the inquiry explained that force varied according to the square of the alteration in speed. So it's not just about a few mile an hour slower, it's that that effect squares. So this could have had a positive impact on the the accident, if not preventing it. On the subject of whether that faster emergency stop message, presuming it had actually been sent, would have prevented the accident, the report tells us this. If the emergency braking of the turbo had been applied up to 17.55 seconds after it passed SN109 at danger, the train would have stopped by about 562 metres past it, short of the fouling point. Although I just want to say that this 17 second period isn't as long as it might originally sound. If we add up the time that it would take for Hodder to receive and react to that alarm, the time it would take him to actually put the controls in that position to add up the two and a half seconds that it actually took for the alert that he'd spatted to show in the IECC, All of those things combined means that the gap actually shrinks very quickly to a window of only seven to nine seconds of time in which that effective stop message could have been sent and brought Hodder's train to a halt. Seven to nine seconds isn't an amazingly long period of time. And Cullen does sum up as saying that he doesn't suggest that Alan was at fault in not seeing that that message was sent within that nine seconds. However, And this is the key and something we're going to keep circling back to covering this accident. If management had applied the lessons of previous SPADs, and if he had been adequately instructed and trained as to how to react to a SPAD, in particular that he should act immediately and he should be alert to using CSR when it's available, it's entirely the case that he may have been able to send the emergency message in time and would have done so. Yet again, we find ourselves revisiting the painful and frustrating concept that insufficient training leaves someone unequipped to deal with the situation that they find themselves confronted in, with deadly consequences. This is turning out to be another long episode, and so I'll look to draw it to a close shortly. But before that, we need to consider a major part of the story of Ladbroke Grove, a part that started years before Michael Hodder even stepped into the cab of a train, and long before he probably even submitted his application to do so. The inquiry's concern with SN109 and the spads that had occurred at that signal led to an examination of circumstances which led up to the events on the 5th of October, against the background of management by RailTrack of the safety of the infrastructure between Paddington and Ladbroke Grove. In the area of RailTrack's management of the infrastructure, there were a number of areas that were specifically looked at by the inquiry, building on the information that we've already heard about Hodder and the issues of the track design and signalling work at Ladbroke Grove. And the first of that is just to build on those signal sighting difficulties on the approach and exit from Paddington. Now, RailTrack was the company which came into existence following the breakup of British Rail. It's the predecessor of Network Rail, and we'll probably touch on that next episode. RailTrack was the infrastructure operator, and they owned it as well. They were responsible for the infrastructure itself, the tracks, the tunnels, the bridges, the signals, the points. The If you look at it and it ain't a train, that was their responsibility. And Tox took responsibility for actually running the services. They assumed responsibility for the safety of their infrastructure on the 1st of April 1994. Now, we know that the redesign of the track work in this area took place in advance of that transition, and as we hinted earlier on, it appears to have been assumed that the layout could be safely signalled, and the layout of the track was finalised without reference to where the signals were going to go. Following the layout of the track being designed and starting to be worked on, it was recognised that signal sighting was going to be difficult. This was because of the numerous overbridges, the curves in the track, and above all, the speed that they designed the track to run at. Despite these factors, there does appear to have been a resistance to reconsidering the track layout or the manner that it was going to be used in. Kind of a, well, this is how we want to build the track, get the signals to work, attitude might be present. By 1993, signalling sighting issues with gantry had been identified and the signals had been lowered by 40 centimetres, but it doesn't seem that any consideration was ever given to moving the gantry to a more suitable location. And we know that in 1995, the sighting of signals in the area was worsened by the introduction of the electrification, but how were those risks handled? We know now by looking at the stuff that's in the report, that on the 17th of May that year, the safety review group for the zone approved the safety plan. This was at a time when construction had already started. Mr R. L. Wilkinson, who chaired the group, gave evidence that the approval would not have been given to the group if they'd taken the view that the OHLE, the overhead line equipment, had a significant effect on signal sighting. And I'm going to introduce a man by the name of Bray now, because he seems to be to be one of the most intelligent and uh, forward-thinking individuals working at RailTrack at this time in this area, um, for reasons we'll get into. A uh, signalling development engineer, Bray wrote in August to others within RailTrack that the signal sighting at particular signals would be significantly restricted by the overhead line equipment structures, in particular, the masts on left-hand curves and this would mean virtually continuous interruption of signal sighting. It's an astute and important observation, but the response of the Major Projects Division was concerning. It was recounted that their response was that they would be ple- they would proceed to erect the OHLE structures despite the objections, and would wait and see how many drivers complained, and that any who complained would be taken to Euston and shown what problems the West Coast drivers face. Yeah. That's the quote from the report. The fact that they were not prepared to be stopped by the relevant group standard and they turned around and said they would seek a derogation for the work. And this is why I like Bray, because Bray's opinion of this response is one that I can certainly get on board with. Mr. Bray described this as unacceptable. He said that the cost of repositioning the bases for OHLE must should not be used as a reason for unsatisfactory signal sighting He didn't receive a reply to his letter. At the same time, the view was entertained by the resident engineer that interruptions of signal sightings caused by the masts could be ignored on the grounds that they were of very short duration. And I'm not entirely sure that this is something I agree with at all and that the uh, ensuing spads and other issues in the area were reflective of that being the correct view. As Cullen summed up in the inquiry, two points stand out in regard to the development of the scheme. First, from the outset, that there was not adequate overall consideration of the difficulties that would face drivers, in particular signal sighting, on which the safety of travellers critically depended. Signals control trains. They tell them when to go, when to stop. They tell them when it's safe and when it's dangerous. And the worst signal is the one you can't C. Secondly, the report tells us that when difficulties did emerge, there wasn't an adequate reconsideration of the scheme. There was a resistance to questioning what had already been done. Cost, delay, and interference with performance objectives underlay that resistance. Adjustments were made to the location and configuration of signalling, but without, as I will narrate later in this chapter, the required viewing by a signal sighting committee. The residual risk was never assessed by whatever methods were available. And in addition to this, there were some other points of consideration as part of the infrastructure management. Uh, The first of this I'll talk about is known as flank protection. The concept of flank protection is to ensure that points are set in a way that will divert a train that's passed a red signal to a lower risk route. So in the context of the crash at Paddington, at Labbrook Grove, Flank protection would have involved the turbo being diverted onto the down relief line when it passed SN109 at danger because the down relief line would have offered far less risk. And in the late 1980s and 90s, when the scheme for the new layout was being devised, it would have been quite simple and practical to include this provision as a program of works. It's not to say that flank protection is without risk, but it could have had a positive impact. But Cullen, even Cullen, couldn't tell us whether it was an important omission, saying that it's necessary to make a comprehensive assessment for the need for flank protection, but also the risks that its use may give. So, if there was trains arriving on the down relief as well as the down the up relief as well as the up main, the flank protection wouldn't have been the right move in that situation. It, it's not a very clear cut, simple yes or no, unfortunately. So. Even Cullen tells us that it's impossible for him to determine whether it should have been provided, or should not have been provided. But, there was one really significant area of failing, and it's the reason that we could start last week's episode by calling it the Tale of Nine Spads. Because there were multiple spads at SN109, a signal that RailTrack had responsibility for, that signallers who worked for RailTrack were controlling. And they had a duty to deal with those. And not just a moral duty, they had a written in the railway standards duty. In fact, Group Standard GO slash RT 3252, which was first issued in March of 1995, required that a signal sighting committee be convened following the passing of signals at danger. And as a minimum requirement, one should be convened as soon as possible or as soon as is practicable when a signal has been passed more than twice or more than once in 12 months or three or more times in any three year period. Think about the frequency and the times and dates I told you about last week. Eight signals passed at danger, well the same signal passed eight times at danger in a five year period. That meets that. In fact of the eight previous SPADs at SM109, six of them met this criteria six of them should have led to the convening of a signal sighting committee but in none of those cases was a committee convened the failure to do so is particularly difficult to understand considering that the spad action group that took place on the 5th of february 98 the day after the last spad before ladbroke grove that decided that sighting committees for sn63 and sn109 should be convened within a month And add into that, that on the 20th of April ninety eight, Railtrack received from 1st Great Western a hazard ranking form in regard to that SPAD. And the recommendation from that form was that the sighting is to be reviewed. Yet, despite all of this, it never took place. The uh, train operator liaison manager, who it seems held a responsibility for this, gave three explanations for why it hadn't taken place. Difficulty in obtaining safety permits for possessions, The lack of qualified persons and the lack of a clear direction from Paddington, uh, from senior management on Paddington. But, and I hate saying adding to this, but there is another point of severe frustration relating to this signal and the fact that these committees were not being undertaken. In March of 1999, the year of the accident, several months before, The zone was audited by RailTrack's assurance and safety team as part of a national review to determine whether there was compliance with the railway group standards. The audit examined SPADs which had occurred at SM109 and in its report in April revealed that in both cases the zone had not convened a signal sighting committee following the SPAD. The zone scored as the lowest of all zones follow-up audit carried out in September of 1999, the month before the accident took place, could find no evidence of action being taken by the zone. One has to wonder, what is the point of an audit if it doesn't hold processes to any account, especially a safety focused audit? Corrective actions from an auditor they are not the worst thing in the world, but it's a checklist of things you need to do. And clearly, this hadn't happened. And it's probably one of the biggest failings, if not the biggest failing. If I was to underpin one factor as to being my opinion of the reason that Labrook Grove took place, it is this one. Because if a signal sighting committee had viewed SM109, they would have found that it wasn't compliant with standards for either signal sighting time or with regards to the configuration of the signal itself. That committee would have been able to note the effect of the bridge, the OHLE, the yellow reflective line indicator signs on the gantry and the speed restriction board. They would have also been able to assess the effect of the borderline quality of signal sighting and the unusual and inconsistent signage. They would have seen all the things that were wrong with this signal, they would have seen that they were there and they were wrong. And there was a sighting committee held after the accident. Funnily enough, they did make these observations and they recommended a complete review of the size and positioning of the line overhead line equipment within the area to see if smaller equipment could be used and installed, and if some of the other components that can be moved away from the view of signal aspects. They also asked that RailTrack undertakes a complete review of the line ID signage, which was signage on the gantries, which... Added to the confusion with a view to standardizing that, the committee was held was held several years too late in a closing remark on the absence of signal sighting committees failure of rail track to actually meet its obligations. Cullen said in his report that the failure to have signal sighting convened was the persistent and serious and due to a combination of incompetent management and inadequate process it's two very poor reasons for 31 people to die <laughs> As the word count for this episode ticks over 10,000, a rare occasion, I'm going to look to draw this episode to a close. We've uncovered some of the main reasons and factors around the accident. And although nobody will ever be able to fully understand the truth of what took place in the cab of Michael Hodder's train, I think we've reached some conclusions along with the Cullen inquiry. We didn't quite get through everything, in the investigation this time round. So next time we're going to look at the last few points from the reports, some of the factors highlighted around management systems on the railway at the time and safety systems that might've had an impact had they been, well, present. And then we're going to look at some of, but certainly not all, of the 89 recommendations listed in part one of the Cullen report. But then we're gonna move forwards. We're going to look at the legacy of Ladbroke Grove. The second part of the Cullen inquiry and what that meant for safety management in the industry going forwards. As a closing thought for this week's episode, I'll say this. We can't escape the fact that Hodder made an error on that day. For some reason, he accidentally drove his train past SN 109 at danger. But we know that the biggest failings lie with the fact that the industry had at least six, if not eight, occasions where it could have stepped in and done something about what was clearly a problematic signal. One which didn't have flank protection, any other blocks in place. One that had shown its problematicness at times previously. One that people with 40 years of experience had still managed to pass at danger. We then had signalers who relied on drivers being aware that they had spatted and who left pauses in their response to the incident. And while seven or eight seconds might not have been enough to improve or prevent the accident, every second earlier that they acted could have reduced the speed of both trains before they met in the middle of Ladbroke Grove Junction. For me, inaction is one of the greatest sins when safety is involved. There's no innocence involved in it. If a risk has been highlighted... And you can do something about it, especially if it is your job to do something about it. Well, then you have to bear the weight of the consequences. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Signals to Danger. As ever, come and hang out with me on social media. Find us at at Signals to Danger on Twitter, at Signals to Danger on Facebook, or drop me an email at daniel.fox at dfrailmedia.com. Don't forget, there's merchandise on sale, the link you'll find on our social posts, and again, a big thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you are interested in supporting the podcast check out the link on the support page of our website, SignalsToDanger.com. I don't want to sound like a well-known supermarket, but every little helps in both supporting with the costs of running the podcast, but also convincing Mrs. Signals that it's worthwhile use of my time. In any case, with all of that said, until the next episode, travel safe.